if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. If you've been following this podcast, then you've already met my friend Ed and heard some of our church chats. Now, Ed is a Protestant who spent most of his career working in evangelical Protestant churches as a music director or worship leader. We actually worked together at the same church where I was one of the teaching pastors back in the early 2000s. I left to become Catholic and, well, Ed didn't. But recently, Ed has become curious about Catholicism. And so we started to get together for lunch sometimes to talk about it. Eventually, we started recording our conversations so that, well, so that you could listen in. Because if you're on Ed's side of the table and you're considering Catholicism, or if you're on my side of the table and you're looking for a way and the right words to share your Catholic faith with a friend or a family member, then hopefully these conversations will be helpful to you. To be clear, these conversations are totally real. Ed really is exploring the Catholic faith, and you're getting to listen in in real time. So, Ed has never been to a Catholic Mass before, but he's finally agreed to come and experience one. So, I'm going to take him to our diocesan cathedral soon, but I wanted to get together and sort of prepare him beforehand by explaining what the Mass is and what he can expect. After he goes, We'll record his immediate impressions so that you can follow his journey. Welcome to Church Chats with Greg and Ed, where Greg and his Protestant friend Ed chat about the church. So, Ed, I've been looking forward to this because we're going to go to your first Mass uh, this weekend. Uh, we're going to go to the cathedral, and you're going to go to your first real Catholic Mass. And uh, so I thought we'd spend some time today just talking about that and maybe preparing, answer you some questions that you might have before you go to prepare you for that. And then after we go, we'll talk again and get your impressions. Yeah, I, it's, the, um, it's a funny thing. I spent a long time working for a church, in different churches, trying to come up with ways to make people feel more comfortable when they came in to try to, you know, ease them into it. And now when I walk into, when I walk into the, um, uh, Our Lady of the Lake Church where the class was that I took from you, I would like peek into the auditorium and I'm thinking, oh, this is really scary. You know, I, I uh, uh, it's all new to me and it's I, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's quite an experience. So I am, I'm very curious. I, I really, I have all these presuppositions about, about, what a Catholic mass is. And right. I know they're all going to be dispelled, but I, you know. Right. Well, I, 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 and just for the people who are listening, we haven't sort of gamed this out in advance. We haven't done any prep work because I want Ed's questions to be real authentic here. And I really want to capture your sense of, you know, your curiosity and right. maybe your sense of wonder and the sort of encounter with it as best we can um, and have that really be authentic to really capture your, 
your feelings and your emotions and your impressions. So um, let's talk today about the things that maybe you want to know or questions that you have before we go this Sunday. As I was just thinking this through and jotting a couple things down that I wanted to make sure I didn't forget, I thought, you know, this is, I, I realize now as I think it through that this is just so different than what than the way I have thought about what the purpose of a Sunday service is. Right. Uh, just completely different. So here is my right off the off the cuff impression all my life. Right. So I'm 65 years old and now I, you know, and all my life I thought, well, I know what this is about. I I know. I right. know what this is about. And 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 it always looked to me from the outside like it's just this really elaborate 2000-year-old thing that they've that they've been refining and refining and refining until there's absolutely no wiggle room and it's just this one very narrow thing that they do and there's a lot of chanting it's all flash it even seems sort of you know it, it almost uh I, I hate to say i hate to use this word but it's almost sort of pagan feeling right. to me like right like looking at it from the outside how is this any different than you know anything else um Right. that I would think of as a pagan thing, right? And I know that that isn't right, but right. I don't know what it really is. Yeah. You know what I mean? I have a little idea. But. Yeah, no, it's interesting that you say that. And yeah, I want to get into that. Um, but first, I, I want to throw out something that I've been thinking about. It's, it's interesting to look at the baby boomers in America mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, Gen X, whatever, because... Like when I first came into Christianity through campus ministry and the, you know, the Jesus movement in the, uh, in California and in the California campuses where I first encountered Christianity, the assumption was that the default setting for humanity and then the default setting for the church is that the early Christians must have been more or less like us. Right. Like, right. Like right. they, they wore blue jeans. Well, they didn't really wear blue jeans, but they right. wore whatever the first century equivalent of blue right. jeans was. And, you know, kind of t-shirts or hip shirts. And they, they, they were like Roman sandals, but they were like, kind of like our flip flops or our tennis right. shoes. And then they went over to each other's houses and they kind of like hung out, you know, cause it was house churches. Right? right. And the assumption was that their houses much, must've been a lot like our apartments or houses. And there's a sort of arrogance that came with sort of American mid-century or baby boomers. Of course, everything about the baby boomers is that way. To assume that the default setting for mankind, that the original setting of the church, is that the early Christians looked more or less like 1970s or 1980s baby boomers. Right. And that somehow all of this stuff that you're referring to crept in. And that what we were right, doing in right. the church was getting it back to the way it originally was, which is the early Christians looked more or less like American baby boomers in the way they dressed right. and they acted in their culture and how they worshipped. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just an arrogant and weird assumption. So part of what you're encountering when you see those elements of the mass is history. And that maybe the ancient Christians didn't look as much like us as we think. Right. And that over 2,000 years, part of being in the continuity and the community of all of the Christians who have lived is to understand that the culture of the church is way bigger than us. And that 
the purpose of church is not to turn it into a thing that makes, you know, late 20th century or any early 21st century Americans comfortable in the way that the room is designed and the way that people dress and the ways that they speak and the, the way they act things you know, carry out, you know, culturally, you know, we're super cult comfortable walking into a place, sitting in a comfy chair with a cup of Starbucks from the lobby, mega, you know, the, the Starbucks in the lobby of the mega right. church. And then we sit down in a comfy chair and then some guy comes up in a, you know, like a cool vintage t-shirt and jeans right. and like greets us and chats us up a little bit. And then we chat each other up and it goes, kind of goes from there. And then we see a video uh, because that's so us, it's so part of our culture, but that's an imposition backwards to assume that that's the way that the culture that early Christians lived in. The truth is, is that the early Christians lived in a Greco-Roman culture, especially right, right. in the ancient Near East, influenced heavily by the Greek and Roman empires. And that if we really want to understand what the early Christians were like, they were more, they, those were their cultural influences, not rock and roll and movies and video and casual American culture. So I guess all this is a, a long way to say that when you look at it, because I felt that way when I was interested in converting to Catholicism or got curious about it, is it all feel, felt so strange to me. And my assumption was it felt strange that this was an imposition on what Christianity was supposed to be, rather than me thinking that all of my evangelical megachurch American cultural assumptions might be an imposition on Christianity. Well, that goes along with what I said in one of our previous talks about not allowing historical Christianity in and then throwing all of that out with a long, so everything got thrown out along with it. And, and uh, I didn't, I wasn't taking any of it into account. And it's, it's actually, uh, I use the word arrogant. I, I, that's how I feel I've been about it is that I, it, it, who am I in my, uh, to assume that the way I have been brought up in the, the culture I've been brought up in. So, you know, 50 years of culture that that's, that's the thing. And everything right. else that came before it just doesn't have any meaning and doesn't, you know, and right. that seems, uh, when I was, I've referenced this a couple of times when I listened to the long lecture series about the history of Christian theology, um, a couple of years ago, I thought, oh, you know, maybe I should consider that all of this that has that has built up over all these centuries. Maybe this is maybe maybe this. There's a lot of substance here, right? That, and that's that's what I'm assuming. I'm going to find out when I get to the mass. Well, let's get into that now, okay? Because there right. is substance. And the other thing that drives me crazy now on on the other side of this, and when I was uh, first a Christian, again, in that sort of casual American Jesus right. movement, contemporary evangelical world, it all seemed super weird and extra biblical and extra Christian, not Christian. And, and again, I mean, I'm defining Christian as people basically like me. Um, but the reality is, is that everything in the mass is centered on Jesus Christ and everything is profoundly biblical. And I would argue that the Catholic Mass, the Catholic liturgy, is far more biblical than any Protestant uh, service you've mm -hmm. ever been to. So let's get into that for okay. a second. 
So I want to start by just uh, talking about why it's called the mass. I mean, I've, I remember going through that and having people ask me, well, right away, that seems like a barrier. Why aren't we just going to the, the church service or, right. right? Why is it called the mass? Well, the word mass comes from the Latin word missa. And it was, it's the, basically the last words in the liturgy. At the very end, the priest says, so right. go, the mass is ended. In the traditional mass in Latin, it was go, you have been sent. And so the word mass comes from that notion of mission. And historically, it, what I think is interesting is Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, saw that line at the end of the liturgy, go, the mass is ended, or go, it has been sent. He saw that as looking backwards to Christ's mission to us. Mm -hmm. So he was saying the mass concludes by us realizing that God, had, that Christ has been, you know, uh, that Christ has been sent to us, the mission of God has been uh, accomplished and we have encountered him. Mm -hmm. And Pope Benedict XVI said, another way to look at that is that it's looking forward, that it's about us going out and carrying the mission on. And I think both are reality. The mass is about us encountering the son of God who has been sent to us mm -hmm. so that we can be sent out to accomplish the mission of God in the world and to transmit the gospel. So that's where the word mass comes from. Now, there are probably a lot of different ways to think about what is happening in the mass, but I want to answer your the, the big question, you know, sitting on the table, which is why is this so weird? And you put it as <laughs> right. arcane and elaborate and right. pagan and all that. So what I want to do is suggest that there's there's maybe two ways that you can think about what's happening in the mass and what's going on. And the first is you can think of it as the whole thing as an encounter with the word of God. Mm -hmm. So the mass is divided, if you think about it this way, into two halves. The first half is called the liturgy of the word or the liturgy of the, think of it as the liturgy of the written word. Get in a minute. But basically the first half of the mass is dominated by reading scripture and hearing a homily or a mm -hmm. sermon about it. So it's the liturgy of the written word. The second half of the mass is the liturgy of the incarnate word, which is the liturgy okay. of the Eucharist. Yep. The whole thing is about encountering Christ in his written word and in the word made flesh in Holy Communion. So the entire mass is an encounter with the Son of God, the Word who has been sent to us, who we encounter in the first half of the Mass, in the Scriptures, and in the second half of the Mass, in the bread and the wine of the Incarnation. See, that's... I hadn't thought of it that way, about it being an encounter. I don't think of... In the church services I was involved in planning, for years, okay, we... We talked about people wanting people to have an encounter with Christ, but we, we assumed that that was a very personal and private thing that would happen just inside of them and not, not in the service and not all we could do was set them up for it, but we couldn't really lead them into it or we couldn't really, we couldn't make that happen. Right. You know? uh, and now I'm, uh, I'm thinking th this is something that I think people, and I include myself in this, are longing for, 
right. is, is an encounter with God, something that changes me and that inspires me. Uh, I, I, I want to, uh, what's the, I want to touch the divine, right? Exactly. And, and see, this is where I want to, to any Protestants who are listening to this and are curious about Catholicism, hear me on this. The Catholic mass is all about an encounter with the word of God. I'll say it one more time. The Catholic mass in its totality is an encounter with the word of God in two forms. The first half of it is an encounter with the scriptures, the written word of God, one of the ways we know him. And the second half is an encounter with the incarnate word of God made flesh in the bread and wine of communion. So when I hear my Protestant friends say the Catholic mass isn't about you know, God's word or it isn't about Jesus, I go, you're just not, that, that, I'm sorry, I hate to say this, but it's ignorant. Right. And what you're saying is, because you and I both worked in that world and we both planned and executed all of those evangelical services in yep. our careers. And what we were always trying to do was to create the conditions where people could have a private, um, subjective, emotional encounter with Christ. Right. And we might read the Bible, uh, we might read the scriptures so that they could hear it, but this is an actual encounter. And that's profoundly biblical. Because if you look at the Old Testament, God encounters his people. God, people's, people encounter the God. So Adam and Eve encounter uh, the Lord in the garden right. before the fall. He'd come in the cool of the day and walk in the garden. And they had this, this encounter, this, this relationship with the living God. After the fall, God makes a means for the people to encounter him again, which is the covenant. And through the covenant and then eventually the establishment of the worship in the tabernacle, Mount Sinai, the tabernacle, the temple, God makes a way that his people can encounter and meet him. Then... He comes in the perfection of Christ, right? Completes mm -hmm. all of that. Now, the sort of evangelical Protestant notion is now we never need to meet him corporately again, or we kind of do. Uh, but what happens is all that is just simply perfected. The Old Testament encounter with God is perfected in the New Testament encounter with God with the new covenant. And when we look into the book of Hebrews, like Hebrews 8 and 9, where we read that we have a high priest on the order of Melchizedek mm -hmm. who comes into the temple, when we read that we gather together, when we look at um, the, the new heaven and earth and the new Jerusalem in it, it's all about once again creating this place where God's people can encounter the living word. Mm -hmm. the Logos of God, the second person of the Trinity and encounter the Trinity through him. And what the mass is, is creating that moment of encounter through the two ways that we can know him, the scriptures mm -hmm. and the sacrament of the Eucharist and the bread and wine. When you gather together, do this to remember me. Right. So the first way to think of the mass is is in a, is a, in a very biblical a, a, a new covenant encounter with the word of God in those two ways. But there's another way to think of the mass. Uh, and that is as a pilgrim journey, a, the, the pilgrim or journey or the, or the progression of the person toward God. So in this way, we would think of the mass as divided into three parts. The first part of the mass is called the introductory rites. And that is about purification of our soul. So we'll get into that in a minute. But basically, in the introductory rites, we 
confess that we're sinners, we show repentance, and we hear the mercy of God pronounced to us, right? So in, put this in Protestant terms, that's salvation. Mm-hmm. And the, the, this sort of threefold way of thinking about the Mass, it begins with us encountering Christ in salvation. We come in, we confess our sins, or you know, corporately confess our sins. The priest pronounces the mercy of God, right? Mm-hmm. And then the second part of the mass is um, is called like in Teresa Avila and St. John of the Cross, these medieval saints talked about this way. You start with purification or I think of salvation. The second part is what they called illumination. And what this is, is growing in faith and knowledge, sanctification mm-hmm. in Protestant terms. Right? So how does the gospel progress? We come in, we repent, and hear salvation pronounced. Then we grow in faith and knowledge through reading of the word and instruction of the word. And then we've progressed to the third part, which is union with God. So if you think about this as the progression of the person toward God, it mm-hmm. starts with salvation, pro- progresses through sanctification, and ends in union. And that's what communion is. Mm-hmm where we come and we finally have a communion with the living God in the flesh and blood. So mass divided up into the introductory rite, then the readings of the scriptures and the homily and the confession of the creed and prayers, and then moving into communion. So that's the pilgrim journey of the soul or the person towards God. And once again, it's about an encounter, but it's that progressive encounter starting at the foot of the cross, learning and listening to the scriptures and learning from them and finally being united with Christ in his word. So either way you think of it as an encounter with the word of God uh, in his written form and uh, in in the incarnate form or as the progression of the person toward God from salvation to sanctification to union or communion, uh, the mass is a profoundly biblical encounter with Christ. See, this is a thing that sometimes bothered me about putting together services at the churches I've worked at, and that was that we assumed that people knew more than they did, I think. And this strikes me as sort of, you come in every week, and it's like like that story about, I don't know, I think the I think it was the Notre Dame coaches at Newt Rockney or whoever, whoever this guy was, who he would start out every football season by holding the football up in front of the team in the locker room and saying, this is a football. Right. And here's, and our goal is to get it across the goal line. Right. That's the first thing. Right. And this is what, that's what this reminds me of is that when I walk in, um, I am reminded very bluntly at every step along the way, as you've described it, Right. This is who you are, and this is where you need to be, and this is your condition, and this is how you get there, and this is what you do. And we're in, I'm hearing, for lack of a better term, the basics every time I come, which, which means they never get very far away from it. I think that's right. I, would, I think I would just modify or caution there that it's not just about teaching. In other words, it's not just didactic. It's not just pounding into you. This stuff, it is actually, and this is the incarnational or sacramental aspect of Catholicism, Catholicism, it's actually enacting that encounter, right? It's not just about, hey, Ed, we want to remind you while you're in mass about who you are and what you're doing. I mean, it, it does remind us of that. It does teach us. But actually, this is the encounter. God wants to be encountered as the word of God in written form and in the incarnate form. He does want us to progress in a sense, toward him mm-hmm. from repentance through growing in faith and knowledge to communion with him. 
And the mass is a structured way we do that. I mean, if you think about it like a wedding, right? Because you and I have both, uh, you know, done a hundred weddings or hundreds of weddings between us uh, when we were in ministry. And we've seen every kind of wacky wedding that people do. But traditionally, a wedding has a structure to it. Right. I mean, the bride and the groom enter, you know, theoretically, the, you know, the bride's father comes down and gives her to the groom. Right. Then they come up, they hear instruction, they take vows, they, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Then then the minister or the officiant is able to pronounce Mm -hmm. uh, the man and wife and then they exit to begin their life together. Right. And that's not just a lesson. That's actually them enacting that process of marriage. And think of the mass that way. We are actually enacting this encounter with God. Right. It's it's I I think that's. Yeah, I think that's what I was trying to get at Um, is that this is not about. This Sunday, it's not about how you are how to make your marriage better. And this next right. Sunday, it's not about, this is about uh, you and God and Christianity and your approach to God. And we're going to, and we're going to do it every week. Right. And, and it's, you're not okay. going to get very far away from it. Right. But, and now this gets to a, a real important issue today. And that is why should I go to church at all? So, Right. Increasingly, as church attendance falls away and we all have people in our lives, like, why do I need to go? We all have kids or like, why do I even bother to go? And increasingly, it becomes harder for churches to give a good answer. Like, why do I have to go to church on Sunday? And you and I both grew up in that Protestant world or the evangelical world where you say, well, because you'll hear God's word. And you go, well, I can hear that on a podcast. I can sit at home and stream it in my, in my pajamas. I can, you know, meet with my friends at the coffee shop and hear God's word. Why do I need to go on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock to this building? And they say, well, it's good to sing songs. You know, Paul makes some reference to do not cease meeting together or gather together to sing songs. And you'll, you hear, well, I could do that remotely. I could do this and that. My friends in my Bible study on Tuesday night could sing a song together, play guitars on the beach, whatever we want to do. You increasingly come up with this sort of answer. And so what you end up doing is selling it on its benefits. You know, I find that when I go to church more often, I just feel closer. I meet people. I feel more elevated. I come away feeling good. But once again, it's selling the subjective value of it. What Catholicism is actually saying is that we encounter God in a designated way. We come and we this is that encounter with God. And that's why we go. We go to take the sacrament. We go to meet him in the Eucharist. We go to meet him in the readings. We go to enact this progression. It's a little bit like saying, to follow that analogy of the wedding up, if you were to say to a couple that was living together, you know, you guys should have a wedding. And they go, why bother to have the wedding? We're already living together. Right. And of course, you hear that all the time. If you've been living together for five years, why bother to have a wedding at all? Get some presents or something, formalize it. Mm-hmm. But it's actually that wedding ceremony is the marriage. It, it creates right. the marriage, it right. creates the covenant. And in the same way, the Catholic mass is that encounter, that inaction of creating the union of you and Christ and the people in Christ. And that's why we go and we have an obligation to go on a regular basis because we are called to come and meet our Lord. Well, this, I, this, um, this actually happened to me 
years ago when I worked at the church, the big church. There was a guy that I knew well. I encountered him a lot at the church, and and uh, we were talking about church. And he said, "You know, last week we were we, my wife and the kids. We were all going to go to church, but then you know, we just went out to the beach." And this was the key phrase. He said, "I got more out of that right. than I did out of coming to church." And I right. thought, "Well, yes, if getting something was the only reason, I." I wanted to I wanted to take him out to lunch and alternately try to convince him and then smack him because I right. I thought well this is this is not you know <laughs> right well, what kind of view is that of right. you know well it's a consumerist view it's a yes. con- consumeristic view of w- what's in it for me but again I think I can talk about this from a Protestant perspective having been a Protestant pastor what we would always say is that the Catholic mass is unbiblical or whatever, but I think it's more profoundly biblical because it draws from biblical example. And it goes back to that notion of, well, you know, what we want to do in sort of American circles is just kind of gather together, read, read the Bible, sing some songs, watch a video package, do this, that. That's great. And there's nothing wrong with those activities as activities, but there is a way that the encounter with Christ uh, is in, in with the covenant is outlined in scripture. In the old covenant, yes, we've progressed right. to the new covenant, but the new covenant doesn't is a completion of the old covenant. Right. And it looks forward to the ultimate expression of that when we look into. So, if you go into if you look at the Catholic Mass, let's take this up. You were talking about how much of it looks pagan and weird. Right. And we'll get into that in a minute. But What's funny about that is all of the things that look pagan and weird are scriptural references. So go into Revelation chapter five Mm -hmm. and look at what John sees happening before the throne of God. Look in Hebrews eight and Hebrews nine at how Paul describes uh, Mm -hmm. the priestly order of Melchizedek and, and, and the new covenant. What we are doing is really leaning into that new covenant and a lot of the things, the, the, and we'll get into those in a minute, a lot of the very things that look weird to us are actually biblical. And I'm going to show you here in this conversation that everything that you see in the mass has a biblical reference. Mm-hmm. It's, it's um, I feel a little bit like, listening to you, I feel a little bit like Job at the end of the book where he says, surely I have spoken of things I didn't know about, you know? And that's, I knew this was coming. I just didn't know, I just didn't know what to expect, you know? Um, my, my, um, and, and the, my, the, the end of my story about the guy who went to the beach with his family is that I wanted to counter him, but I didn't know what to say. I thought, well, what do I have? What do I have to offer him? And I had a very brief experience. My uncle Ted, who has passed on, said this to me probably ten years ago or more. Um, we were talking about church, and they went to this little uh, Methodist church in in Wyoming Park, Michigan. And he said, "You know, Ed, I'm sitting out down there in the pew, and the organist comes out, and she sits down at the organ, and she's got a cup of coffee." He said, and I'm sitting there in the pew thinking, you can't go one hour? Right. And I thought, I, I, I don't have an argument against that. What that, it began, maybe this was a beginning of the beginning for me, is I started thinking, there's uh, the fact that we don't 
dress up a little bit for it. The fact right. that we don't, that we that we can have 16 flavors of coffee to bring in with us, it right. all speaks to this being about us and not being about God. And again, the thing that you said to me that was uh, really stuck with me was was that in the in the Catholic Church, a God is big and I am little. And I thought, well, I like that. I'd, I'd right. like to be little. I'd like to not, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I know you and I uh, both love G.K. Chesterton, and there's that uh, great line in his essay, Why I'm a Catholic, where he talks about Catholicism is the only thing that saves you from being a prisoner to the spirit of your age. Right. And, you know, when I think about how much, you know, when I first started going to church, and I won't name the churches, but the first churches that I ever attended in California were when I was in the process of not becoming Catholic, but becoming a Christian, were these mega churches that were very famous, uh, if I were to say their names. And they were part of this very hip, cool, evangelical, Southern California kind of vibe and culture. And it all felt so natural. And as I was in that process, I felt like, man, I'm encountering the real thing. Mm -hmm. Because my assumption is those early Christians, they were pretty much just like me. Right. They right. they lived like us Southern Californians. They they were like people from Orange County or San Diego. You know, maybe they didn't have Levi's, but they have whatever the first century equivalent of Levi's was. Right. And they kind of hung out and they, you right. know, and and again, so many without you know, so many cultural assumptions about how people thought and dressed and interacted and do those right. things. And then just the assumption that we were sort of the default of what humanity right. was and humanity has always been in the early church must have been. And then somewhere along the way, all this weird stuff got you know, dropped into it. And what right. we're now is taking it back to the original. And part of my long journey to Catholicism, going through years of study in seminary and being a Bible teacher and everything else is I kept assuming that what we were doing or our cultural assumptions were biblical and increasingly couldn't find any biblical ver right. argument for them. Right. Right. So it was like, well, you know, do not give up meeting together. Well, okay, sure. Catholics don't haven't given up meeting together. Um, sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Well, when right. you come on Sunday, we're going to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, you know, come and listen to the word. Well, when you come to the mass, you're going to listen to the word. So where is all of this stuff about having a Starbucks and chilling in the back right. and having right. a guy show us a video package? Where is all of that in scripture? And a lot of times it was this argument from silence. Well, the the scriptures never talk about the priest wearing robes or the scriptures never right. talk about this or that. You go, well, they never talk about the, the, the hip, cool music guy wearing a vintage tee and, right. you know, with an electric guitar either. So right. uh, let's just toss out some of our cultural assumptions. And again, my argument is that, and I'll get into this in a bit here, but that those robes that the priest wears or the candles at the front or all those have direct biblical reference. Whereas right. the guy in the vintage tee with the hipster glasses and the video package right. and the Starbucks, I don't know where those biblical references are. Right. And again, that's part of our own cultural assumptions that we project onto what we think the early church was. One last thing on that, you know, I remember because I've planted in my career, I planted three separate house churches 
Mm-hmm. And so I think I know a little bit about planting of house churches. Right. But always our assumption is, well, they had house churches in the early church. You go, right. but our assumption was that their houses were a lot like our houses. That, you know, like we all hang out at my apartment or my condo or my living room and we've got a patio out back and we all chill and we have some food and drinks. Right. And that that was sort of like. But what's interesting is if you go and look archaeologically at what some of the house churches in the ancient Near East were like in the first century, in the second century, they were Roman and Greek. And that was not only the architecture, but the organization and how they were right. laid out and how people interacted within them. And we know quite a bit about that because, you know, within the first 100, 200 years of Christianity, there's a lot of writings about what people did when they came together. And we've, archaeologists have dug up some of these house churches and they've seen how they've organized and they've got an altar for the Eucharist and they've got a baptismal font and they've got this and that. A lot of them were Roman domuses or villas. And so again, that's that projection of our cultural assumptions right. on the New Testament rather than listening scripture. Right. Well, a couple of thoughts. First of all, um, it, it uh, strikes me now that the uh, sort of the ultimate model for uh, modern church, the way we're thinking about this is maybe Woodstock, right? <laughs> right. It's, all, it's all just Woodstock, right? And it's also, it strikes me as arrogant to say that those people must have really been doing it right. Those people must have really been great. They must have been like us. Oh my well, gosh! You, right? you, you and I both worked in that in that for a while in that seeker church world, right? The Willow right. Creek world, in which the assumption was we needed to design churches that look like uh, movie theaters or concert venues or you know stadiums, and inside and then outside they look like a mall, right. and they've got you know the Starbucks and the stores and everything else in there because what we have to do to reach people is we have to project our cultural assumptions on this. And again, it was all done, the means justified the ends because that way people would hear the word. Well, okay, but again, that's putting a lot of cultural assumptions and projecting a lot of culture that isn't biblical. And then when those people, and I used to be part of that world, would say, this is biblical, and we believe in sola scriptura, nothing that's not in scripture. Right. And the Catholics have all this stuff. Well, when I start looking into what is in the Catholic mass and why it's there and what its biblical references are, I go, right. well, they actually can refer to everything in the mass back to scripture. And I don't know where we get all of this stuff because we're supposedly sola scriptura, but I can't find any of this in the scriptures. <laughs> I was uh, speaking of Chesterton and as it directly relates to this, I was listening, I was out for a drive, which I do every Friday. Uh, being semi-retired has its uh, perks, and I was out driving around and uh, went up to Grand Haven and bought my or Spring Lake and bought my favorite loaf of bread, where I can, which I can only get in one place. Um, and I was listening to Chesterton's book about Aquinas. Yeah, great and book. In the fifth chapter, I think it is, he said, "I have to go. I have to go out and buy a copy of this now because I have to go back and, and like like underline this and write it down." He said that in the and he was talking about several hundred years ago. Right. That that. Christians were falling into, the church was falling into the trap of, of highly prizing intuition and feeling right. rather than, and he said what saved them, if, it saved, if anything saved them from that, was the orthodoxy, was the theology, was right. all of that. And I think, oh my gosh, that's, you know, right. uh, that's what, and this is maybe another uh, a time for a different topic, what started our whole conversation here was 
the my rewriting the lyrics to the church's one foundation, right, which yeah. I which I emailed to <laughs> that you. That was great. Or whatever, we have to go with that again uh, sometime. Uh, because it was a, a way of me saying that what this is what's really bothering. Me. Right. Hey, tell you what, Ed. Um, well, let's keep talking, and I want to walk you through uh, the design of the church, the the order of the mass, the priest's vestments, and all of that stuff. But we're kind of at time for we want to make these yep. podcasts too long. So what we're going to do is going to wrap this episode, mm-hmm. but we're going to sit here at this table and keep on talking, and then we'll just have it as like a part two to the episode. So if you're listening right now, uh, hold on and uh, listen to this, and then just jump over to part two, and you can uh, hear, and we'll unpack the parts of the mass. Great. One of the best ways to learn more about Catholicism, its beliefs and practices, saints and stories, heritage and culture, is to visit the places where the Catholic story actually unfolded with someone who can explain it, answer your questions, and help you apply it to your life, especially as a part of a group of pilgrims that are sharing and supporting and praying for each other as they discover together. That's why the ministry that produces this podcast, One Whirling Adventure, offers pilgrimage trips. I'll be your guide and teacher unpacking Catholic faith, life, and heritage for you in some of Catholicism's most significant sites. If you'd like to join me for a pilgrimage to places like Italy, Ireland, Israel, or France, visit the website oneworlingadventure.org to see the dates and details of upcoming trips. That's oneworlingadventure.org and click on the travel tab at the top. Let's discover our Catholic faith and heritage together. Thank you for listening. Considering Catholicism is produced by One Whirling Adventure, a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a simple mission to excite and educate people about historic Catholic Christianity and to equip them to live, share, and defend it in the 21st century. We depend completely on your generous donations. Learn more and consider supporting our ministry by visiting oneworlingadventure.org.